Hi, it's G3, and this week I am being joined by Mike Edwards, Weiss's deputy CIO. On today's docket, I want to get Mike's thoughts on the recent U.S. midterms, as well as his take on the ongoing protests in China. Listeners of this podcast will know that when it comes to both politics and China, Mike is extremely well-informed on both the facts and the nuances. So please, check important disclosures at the end of the episode, leave a rating of this podcast if you'd like, and stick around for my conversation with Mike. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording, Mike. Fantastic to have you back on the podcast. Nice to be back as always. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. So much is going on that I've been looking forward to speaking with you about the outcome of the U.S. midterms and the protests in China over COVID and maybe some other factors that we will talk about. I want to spend most of our time talking about the situation in China. But before we get there, I do want to get your reaction to why, once again, the U.S. electorate surprised the world and went against most of the conventional wisdom and delivered no mandate, no red wave at all for the Republicans. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, listen, from a broader geopolitical standpoint, I think what's important is in a way, and I mean this on both sides of the political spectrum, it's a rejection of extremism is something we've seen. None of the election denial candidates in state races, most of which were Trump backed, obviously won. If you'd asked me beforehand, I would have predicted most of them would lose, but not all of them. And on the other hand, and this is sort of a more subtle finding, but there were many expectations that were defied in this election. And I think the headline one is the whatever red ripple, not red wave. But there was a lot of disappointment or there should be disappointment on the Democratic side of the ledger as well. New York State was a disaster for Democrats. California was a disappointment. Florida was an unmitigated disaster for Democrats. And I'm talking as much about degree or margins of, in this case, loss, but victory for DeSantis and Rubio and others that are, I think, very important harbingers of the next potentially two, both presidential and the, the midterm in between. But I think that rejection and what's important from that is that I think the dominant topics in this election were not economic ones. And this may be a bridge to talking about some of what's going on in China, which there are very significant economic phenomena and frustrations and that sort of thing. But most folks would have thought this was this inflation versus abortion midterms, as it were. Even if you take that as the framing, which I don't, but even if you did, then you'd have to say that concerns about women's health and abortion and the Supreme Court decision on that played more heavily than the consensus had expected relative to economic considerations. But I would take a step even further than that, which is to say that the broader wealth creation really from COVID, and there's a, an amazing statistic that the uh, using Fed research here, that the Fed's measure of the net worth of the bottom 50%, so the first to 50th percentile in wealth, the net worth of that cohort more than doubled from 2020 to today, which is a remarkable, remarkable phenomenon. I mean, you might say achievement, but when you think about the implications of that, to turn around and say, well, but people are going to vote and be very, very frustrated. 
obviously inflation is generally a regressive phenomenon. And you can see that the lower income and wealth cohorts have done very, very well. And so the idea of voting with your pocketbook is complicated under those circumstances and turned out to be a lot more complicated than you might have thought. And I think that will be an enduring phenomenon And as we sit here and talk and debate incessantly about inflation, which of course is important. I think this is by no means the final ruling, as it were, from the voting population in the U.S. on that. And I think it's a broader global phenomenon that will remain not because of some spot phenomenon or where gas at the pump is or something like that, but because of the broader economic wherewithal of the overall U.S. population, which again, I just think that's a very underappreciated phenomenon. It's interesting how in the U.S. the narratives are being driven by inflation. Are we going into a recession or are we not and the like? But in China, COVID is still very much top of mind. And obviously we've seen that play out on the streets all throughout the nation over the past weekend, and we'll see if that continues. Let's take a step back here and talk about this completely different universe that is occurring right now in China as it relates to what their number one focus is. What are we not getting right? What is the press portraying that, in your view, is an inaccurate portrayal of what's going on there? Because you have taught me to be very, very skeptical of how the press treats all things in China. And so when I look at these headlines, when I read these things, my first response is to say, oh my God, the nation is about to blow up and chaos will occur. And then you are in my little head saying, no, wait a minute, that's not necessarily the case. So yeah. please share with me your views. And, and I am going to say something similar to that here, which obviously doesn't surprise you. But I do want to, maybe just to tie your first question and your second question together, I do want to emphasize that while... The COVID experience, as it were, in the developed West and in the U.S. has been accretive to the net worth of, as we were just talking about, of, of many and, and really been a time of economic security in a sort of backwards way. It has been the exact opposite in China, especially lately, where the lockdowns are creating real uncertainty both in how one lives their lives day to day, but also very, very much an economic uncertainty as well. So it's not just the philosophical or existential misgivings of university students, as you've seen in the past. The frustration, I think this is a reflection of very real and you know, very much economic frustrations because for partly epidemiological, but also just sort of policy randomness reasons, life has become unacceptably unpredictable for a large part of the Chinese population. So I just want to paint that contrast from U.S. perspectives as we finished talking about the midterms and the context for protests in the U.S. and other places have looked like versus what we've just seen in China. Now, to your question on what are we getting wrong or what are we missing, I think there's a, a couple of things. One of them is that the scope here is probably a lot more limited that might be in the mind's eye of a reader of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or what have you, where, don't get me wrong, it is an extraordinary thing to see protests of any kind in the PRC. And the protesters are taking very real risks. But even as we were sitting down a few minutes ago before we were recording, you said a couple hundred thousand people here. And I don't think there were hundreds of thousands or millions of people protesting. I think it's been more limited than that on the one hand. And I also think you have to make a distinction between the 
folks who are actually taking the extreme risks and going up to the police lines and being in the face of police. And then the onlookers and gawkers and Chinese slang, the so-called melon eaters who are just observing this or in the U.S. we'd call it, you know, it's hard to tell who's actually taking risks here versus where the crowds are and how many of the people we're thinking about are just journalists that are trying to observe the phenomenon here. That is not to say that the underlying frustrations aren't massive, but, and this is really the second point, the idea that this is reflective of a call for regime change or certainly that it's predictive of frailty in Xi Jinping's regime, that to me is absurd. And let me explain why. Number one, I think it is Western, to your point, it is Western media that is emphasizing the relatively small, in my understanding, number of people who are saying, step down, Xi Jinping, Xiaotai, step, step down, CCP. That's a very small piece. The white paper phenomenon, that's a different story. Well, please go into that. I think this is fascinating. Yeah. Well, the white paper phenomenon, which I do think that will be the enduring symbol, whether this is short-lived and confined to a weekend or there are pockets of ongoing expressed frustration and protest, I think the white paper will be the enduring symbol of that. And so what that is, is it's actually in person. It's people holding up a blank sheet of paper with two hands, with nothing written on it. Okay. And online, the meme, as it were, is two hands that appear to be holding something, but there's actually nothing there, right? That serves a couple of purposes. On the one hand, it avoids censorship because you're not actually saying anything. So how can you be censored? Well, we'll see, I suppose. But on the other hand, it is actually a protest against censorship in and of itself. So the you know form and function, as it were, combined. But then also, I think, and this is more my interpretation of it, what I think is really fascinating as a protest device is that a blank sheet of paper is very much a Rorschach test for grievance. I mean, you can project onto that whatever is frustrating you. So if this is really about we are frustrated, which is probably the most simple declarative statement we can make about what's being protested, a blank sheet of paper works very well in expressing that within an autocratic regime. So I think that'll be the enduring symbol. Coming back to your question about what the Western media is misrepresenting and, you know, the idea of there being any sort of regime frailty, she, as we have talked about in several occasions, has completely consolidated power. Understanding that there's a frustrated population, which you didn't need protests to understand, but nonetheless, is the point is driven home. That's one thing. The idea that it's creating new factions or frailty or whatever, there's just absolutely no evidence of that. And I think, if anything, it is a reinforcement within the Communist Party of the need for consolidated power and decisive action, as opposed to like somehow, which would be a Western mentality, not a Chinese mentality, but of giving a voice to the people or giving them an outlet or whatever. That's with very high confidence. That's just not something that's going to happen here. Well, I would imagine if anything, it will stoke his paranoia. No, to some extent, I think it was an already extant paranoia. If I'm being honest, I think you see that in the the phrase being used around to describe protesters as hostile forces. And there's a nod to there being foreign influence there and non-Chinese forces. And so that sort of a, a natural nationalistic phenomenon. But yeah, it also speaks to some paranoia. I think paranoia is a feature, not a bug of autocrats. 
Paranoia is a feature not above of autocrats. I would most definitely it's, agree with that. It's not a personality flaw. It's, it's not a personality yeah. flaw. Yeah. It's, it comes with the job exactly. if you want to be an autocrat. Yeah. Well, well done. All right. Well, let me just ask you about the potential implications. I think you've made a very good point. All of those reports you see questioning Xi's regime are best to be ignored. There was, of course, this fire. I'm not going to even dare to try and pronounce where the fire took place. Ten people were killed. It conjured up images in my mind of the famous Triangle Coat Fire of 100 years ago and the degree to which that spurred the labor movement in this country. I'm guessing you're going to say that is not going to spur a similar labor movement in China. But I guess more broadly, will these protests lead to any impacts or any change of trajectory as it relates to how China will manage its COVID policy that investors and allocators should keep in mind. So, and it was Ulumchi, by the way, which, and the reason I'm not just showing off. Uh, <laughs> you are, it's, though. It's actually important. Okay. This, it was in Xinjiang, right? Which we know some, from such issues as the you know global condemnation of China's treatment of Muslims in Xinjiang, right? As far as implications, I think what's important here is that what's being protested against in a way, or at least what was catalyzing these protests, is less COVID policy per se, where there is absolutely, and this is important, I'm sure we'll come back to it, there remains a very strong extant fear of COVID among the general population in China, which is, it's obviously a related phenomenon, but is also a separate phenomenon as what is being protested. The people that died in that fire, they didn't die of COVID. They died of overreach in COVID restrictions. And similarly, where we've had other protests and other things that have gone quasi-viral before being tamped down online, things like pregnant women who have lost their children because they couldn't access hospitals to give birth because of COVID restrictions. I mean, there's a whole host of different, you know, basically what would have been normal activities like a small electrical fire on the 10th floor of a building being put out by the fire brigade or having access to the delivery wing of, of a hospital. These are normal phenomena that have been suppressed. That's what the complaint is about, is our lives have been too disrupted. A degree of disruption is understandable, but this is now just too extreme. And I think that is where the oomph is in terms of this having an impact. It is really to the unsustainability of over-restrictive measures. But I think the impact is going to be more on the decisiveness of a reopening than it is on the necessarily the timing of it. Although I think there's a lot of indications that we, we may have already passed a policy pivot point without it being officially promulgated. But that notwithstanding, I think the real, where some of these frustrations come from is that there have been so many flips and flops in false starts, as it were, in what you might think of as being Chinese reopening, that a further flip-flop is not going to be tolerated. And I think that is probably being at least deepened in the awareness of policymakers. And it's hard to psychoanalyze Xi Jinping himself or whatever, but I would imagine that's having an impact on him. And that's why I say I think the impact is on decisiveness more so than timing necessarily, because there are real epidemiological considerations that are going to enforce the timing question. Well, okay. So if what you're saying is this will inform the degree of certainty to which China begins to ease off of the zero COVID policy because the people have spoken and 
she is probably sensitive to optics. And if he wants to promote animal spirits or at least get the economy moving in the right direction, it seems pretty clear which direction he's going to have to go in. But you have talked a fair bit about demographic realities in China. Mm -hmm. If China does open up, as we all expect, given the fact that they do not have an abundance of mRNA vaccines available and that they have not been able to home grow such a vaccine, what are the implications for old people in China? Your point on mRNA vaccines is an important one in terms of efficacy, where you're kind of talking about 90s, mid-90s style prevention of severe cases, whereas the the various Chinese homegrown vaccines are, if we're being generous, or kind of 70s and 80s style efficacy, per percentage, I mean, not years or decades, rather. The difference, though, I think has more to do with vaccine hesitancy and sort of uptake in especially elderly populations of getting vaccinated at all. That's probably a bigger delta than the relative efficacy. They're both important. I think we're probably past the point in which you could reasonably foresee some giant Chinese order of Moderna's or BioNTech's vaccines. But the importance here, I think, is of building tolerances and changing mentalities. And when I say the importance, it's not an epidemiological forecast. It's not a, it's demographically sensitive, but it really is an economic one because the thing that has restrained Chinese demand is uncertainty. And it's uncertainty mostly among populations that we're not, we're not talking, I mean, listen, the Chinese population over 80 years old is absolutely enormous on a global scale, right? And they're a real force. But the big force in the Chinese economy is people who are not that vulnerable to COVID. And yet their lives are mired in economic uncertainty and an inability to plan. So I think what's important is a willingness, which maybe it's emerging or nascent. Maybe that's, it's too early to say, but a willingness to distinguish between the needs and anxieties of an elderly population versus the younger population. And very specifically, the push that we're starting to see to get elderly people more vaccinated, but also that the inevitability of COVID spread that's attendant to that also creates a shift in mentality. What I would distinguish between is the mentality up till now for the average Chinese person is that getting COVID is unimaginable. That is the experience of someone living in a zero COVID policy country, right? Of which China is obviously the only one. Having it be unimaginable means that you're sort of mired with fear and uncertainty about what having COVID at all would be like. Distinct from the experience of the rest of the world at this point, but certainly us in the West, in the U.S. specifically, of the idea that COVID is manageable, So the distinction between unimaginable to manageable, that's a massive mentality leap. And it's one that we, I believe, we're starting to see signs of at least preparing for. I would not in any way, shape or form predict that you're going to see an about face in policy. And I intentionally chose a phrase there that includes the word face because that's a very important concept in China generally, which is an about face causes loss of face. We don't do that. The changes will be subtle. And I think we're starting to see the subtlety, which is, for example, we have got party mouthpieces, newspapers that are publishing stories now about people who've had COVID and recovered and they're fine now. That is a neat psychological antidote to the unimaginability of having COVID. And obviously you're seeing a host of other measures, but preparing for that reality 
you asked before about what the real market implications are. They're actually preparing Chinese consumers for certainty and planning ability again and a learning to live with it mentality. It happened so long ago for us in the U.S. especially that it's almost hard to be in touch with that mentality shift. But that's what I believe is happening in real time now. And don't take my word for it. If you believe, as we talk about and Jordy likes to say, that asset prices speak volumes and are really the real predictors here. For the month of November, the HSCEI was up 27%. Okay, That would be a phenomenal year. That's for the month. We have seen things that you might consider proxies for China, quote unquote, reopening, both in China and outside of China. Well, I, I don't want to list them all, but performed extremely well over the last week and month. I think all of these are telling you that we, we may not get the timing right, but in terms of decisiveness, we have rising levels of certainty that by, let's say, the middle of next year, if not the other side of Chinese New Year's, that will have a very different mentality for Chinese consumers. Again, it's manageable as opposed to unimaginable. I'd like to conclude by asking you what kind of impact you see on global inflation emanating from China sort of re-entering the position that they have heretofore had as a massive economy where people will travel and there'll be more certainty and the like. What does that do to the overall global inflation picture? Yeah, I mean, it's clearly inflationary. If that prediction is right without pointing to an exact time, China will move from over a very long period exporting deflation. And I mean back 25 years and sort of the age of globalization. But more specifically, over the last year and a half or year or so, when China has been locking down due to COVID while the rest of the world opens up on a relative basis, China, especially on the demand side, has been a deflationary force. And as that reverses, it may very well be an offset to, you know, as we're laser focused to every CPI print and and PPI print and this sort of thing is, I know you've covered very recently with Lundy and Jordy as well. That is going to be happening at a time when the developed world is sort of moving past peak inflation. So how those forces square is going to be extremely important to watch. The sort of stutter step of deflation in some places and inflation in others is going to be harder to parse. I think you're seeing energy markets in particular as sort of very focused on that in the demand picture. But I think more broadly, it's something that China is going to have to wrestle with as well because they're, to your earlier point, trying to create animal spirits. You know, I think there, there may very well be a point where they have to think about as well about how these changes affect the cost of goods, cost of living and that sort of thing. But I should also point out as we started when we were talking about the, the net worth and the lower 50 percent of the U.S. population, we have not had those kinds of economic redistributions in China. So what the countermeasures and maybe even redistributive measures that we may think about, those are also yet to have been felt. So a lot of levers to be pulled still, but I would certainly be comfortable predicting that China will stop exporting deflation in the coming quarters. And possibly exporting inflation. Yes. All right. You heard it here, everyone. Mike, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It was a fun one. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. 
Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.